Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Presumably everybody listening at one time or another has found themselves at Costco rolling out a buggy filled with hundreds of dollars worth of items when you had only gone in there for a bag of milk. You know what I'm talking about. But when you get to the door, there is that friendly person saying, hey, show me your receipt. And the, the, the official version of the story is that they do that to make sure you haven't forgotten everything. Uh, I think many of us have suspicions that there's another reason they're making sure that we're not ripping anything off. But, it, but it's not the only place that this is being done now. I was reading a story this week about now grocery stores in Kitchener have begun putting staff at the door asking for your receipt. And the reason they're doing this is because of a surge in shoplifting that has been going on. And as you read more and more stories, this is now a multi-billion dollar problem in this country. Elsewhere too, but in this country. Ryan Malone is the Vice President of Legislative Affairs uh, with the Ontario Federal, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins me now. Ryan, thanks for doing this today. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Is this something that uh, when you talk to the people who belong to your organization, the stores, the business owners, is this something you're hearing about that we are struggling with what to do with shoplifting these days? We do. We, we have noticed an uptick over the last, I would say, year, year and a half. I think we tend to see these things sort of coincide when the uh, you know, economy turns, inflation is up a little bit. There's some you know, pocketbooks out there that are a little bit tighter. Um, but it's a, a tough proposition for small businesses in particular, because unlike, you know, the, the Costco's, the Best Buy's, the sort of larger chain stores, um, the in, investing in security, be it a person at the door or extra equipment, comes at a pretty significant cost. And coming off of these past three years, there's not a lot of money available for that to small businesses. Yeah, and, and it always, like, you always hear the line or often hear the line that says, well, it's a, you know, it's a victimless crime. It's not, no one's hurt. It's just stuff. And, and I suppose if, you know, if we're going to gauge it by, yeah, nobody died, then it's a victimless crime, I suppose. But if you own a small business and you do have those small margins and are trying to make any kind of living, it, it is not without victims. No, it can be incredibly tough and it has, you know, some further reaching consequences. In fact, just this past weekend, I was talking to a hardware store owner uh, who says that they've endured about, a, you know, $100,000 worth of theft over the last couple of months. And they're not just out the items, but their insurance premiums are now becoming a major concern mm. as well because they have to, you know, look at what the impact on that is going to be. And so they're investing again in cameras and equipment. There's a cost that's coming up there and that's money that's not being reinvested into the business, reinvested into employees, um, but trying to, to stem a loss. Um, and so it's going to have consequences, not just now, but down the road as they have to make other business decisions. I, I don't think we're at, I mean, I'm sure you've read these stories from down in the States, especially places like San Francisco. I don't think we're there yet for those who don't know. I mean, there, there are stores there who are literally like big stores that are leaving the, leaving the downtown because they say we simply can't open anymore because everything we put on uh, up for, uh, for sale immediately gets stolen. I, we're, I don't think we're there yet, but could we see a time when how we shop changes because stores now say, I can't just have everything out on easy display for everyone to see and touch? I mean, you have to hope not, but it's certainly something that, you know, we've we've already seen over a course of a number of years. I mean, the one thing that comes to mind from when I was growing up is different now is, uh, you know, the shaving aisle. The razors are now behind that uh, mm-hmm. plastic uh, 
container at the the pharmacy where you need someone to come and unlock it. We've seen that in uh, video game stores where the disc is no longer in the uh, box; it's it's behind the desk. And I think that as this you know continues to be a challenge, business owners are going to look at you know how can they ensure uh, safety of their employees, safety of the space, their own safety. But also, how can they mitigate that risk? And I think, unfortunately, in some cases, it is going to have an impact on how we shop a little bit and certainly around customer convenience. You are a very young man, Ryan, so I don't know if you're old enough to remember consumers distributing once upon a time. But I, I'm, I'm having this visual. Back in the day, you would go into the consumers distributing and they had catalogs and you filled out the number and everything was behind the counter and they would bring you your item. And I don't know that we're ever going to go back to that as a model, but it wouldn't shock me, as you say, if we go to more of that, where the item is protected and you just ask for it and we'll bring it to you. Yeah, I think that one predates me just a little bit. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> it cer- certainly is a uh, certainly is something that I think business owners are looking at. And again, it, it comes to what is sort of the most cost-effective way for them to do something. And I think that versus you know, a higher tech security system or certainly hiring additional staff, which a lot of business owners are already having trouble with in general for the, the current jobs uh, in the business, let alone someone in loss prevention, um, that, you know, maybe the direction they turn. One of the questions that I don't know that any store owner, any business owner really has a good answer for right now. So uh, I started out by talking about the example of Costco that everyone's familiar with, or the example now that we're seeing in these grocery stores in Waterloo. But what are, what are business owners supposed to do if someone is shoplifting? Because some places you say, just let them go. Don't even, you know, no one needs to get hurt. So just let them walk out. And others say, no, we don't want to just let them walk out. We can't do that. That's a terrible example. What do we do? Well, I, I think that's sort of the, the question that a lot of business owners are, are asking right now. And we know it differs from store to store. We have heard some cases. I think recently we saw kind of high-profile Lululemon, I believe, was the, the yes, retailer. Yes, yes. Um, that was sort of saying we don't want our staff to engage. We've heard that with the LCBO as well. And there's a, there's a real safety concern there, um, and that's where that is stemming from. At the same time, especially with a lot of small businesses, you know, the, the, the theft of an item, especially a high-value item, can have a major impact. And there is a... I think, a, a visceral reaction from staff and business owners to prevent that from happening. Um, but both of those come with, you know, insurance consequences. And when there is a theft that has impact on that side of things down the road, that has not been getting any cheaper over the last few years. So it's another consideration. But I, I think there's a lot of business owners that are, are out there trying to sort this out. And it is certainly a, an additional added stressor at a time where a lot of small businesses really don't need something else on their plate right now. But unfortunately, this is a reality. You've mentioned insurance a couple times, and, and you're, of course you're correct that insurance premiums will go up the more you lose. Surely all of this, whether it's theft directly, whether it's insurance premiums, ultimately this just adds to the price of the thing for the people who are paying for it, right? Very much. I mean, there, there's only so much that especially small businesses can really absorb. Uh, and quite frankly, most of that room has run out over the last three years. Any price elasticity that business owners have pandemic or just inflation throughout their supply chain. So this this adding on really, you know, major impact on the business owner, but customers too will wind up seeing it as well, unfortunately. Before we go, so has this waxed and waned in the past? Is this something that we just believe is here for a blip and, you know, tough times and therefore people are shoplifting more, but they will stop in some short period of time? Or do we run the risk that this becomes almost normalized? 
So I, I think we have seen it wax and wane a little bit in the past, and certainly the hope is that we'll see it, you know, wane once again. But I think for a lot of business owners too, it's it's waiting for that trend or for that uh, downward trend to start isn't much of an option. There's sort of a lot of decisions that need to be made fairly quickly, a lot of concern about what this means, you know, over the next couple of months, unable to think about, you know, will things get better over the next couple of years. So while we hope to, that it's not the, a permanent thing and that we'll see the, the rise taper off pretty quick, at the same time, business owners are still going to have to make those potentially quite costly decisions sooner rather than later. That is Ryan Malo. He is the Vice President of Legislative Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. I really appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for doing this today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Uh, I should point out that um, we have not, apparently in Canada, we haven't updated our stats on this yet, but in the States, the National Retail Security Survey that was done last year, I say south of the border, found 88% of retailers have seen an increase in shoplifting going on. 88%. So you, 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 you combine inflation, you combine other things, and then you combine prices going up because they're losing money and they have to be compensated for this. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a problem. Now, the flip side is some people will say, yeah, but because the prices are going up, that's leading. It's a cycle that is leading to more shoplifting. Be that as it may, it is, uh, it's, clearly, um, it's clearly an issue. The, the last numbers that we have in Canada, by the way, from 2017, $5 billion shoplifting. And apparently everyone says it's up now. That's, that's a lot of money. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. All day today, uh, we here on the station have been talking about a little bit of a celebration that's been going on just down the road from us here. Uh, at McMaster, they are celebrating their season that they had in the world of sports um, over the last year. 11 OUA team medals, I won't list them all. Uh, four medals that they got in U Sports teams, team events, and one national championship. And I'm the lucky one because I, after everyone has been talking to all these people from the school throughout the day today, I'm the one who gets to talk to the national champions. I mean, the, the, the real winner, well, they're all winners, I guess, but the real winners, uh, Max Turek, cross-country champion, leader of the cross-country team that won gold, and Paula Schnur, the coach of that team, and uh, the uh, OUA coach of the year for all sports, the first ever woman to win a U Sports men's cross-country coach of the year. I've got, I've got the all-overachieving team with me now. Paula, Max, how are you guys? Hey, Scott. Max, how are hey, you? Hey, Scott. Doing great. Doing great. Excellent. You guys, as I say, and, and for people who don't know, you guys aren't just, Max, you in particular, you guys aren't just overachievers with how you performed this year to win the national title and you individually to win the national title. But you guys, and I wrote this earlier this year, your team might have been the brainiest group of people ever to compete as one team in any sport ever. That's yeah, right. That's, yeah. I'm going to go with yes. Yeah, Paul, Paul is jumping in with a yes. Max, Max explain, because, I mean, your team, some, tell me some of the, the, the programs that guys on your team were in, Ed, yeah. academic programs. For sure, yeah. We were just at our OUA banquet, and Paul was list, listing off all of our achievements. We have one guy heading out to med school. We have one guy heading to law school. We have a bunch of engineers. Um, it's pretty humbling being among um, all our teammates. So. You're in you're in mechatronics, right? 
Correct. Which, which now uh, many people, including myself, until I asked earlier, have no idea what Mechatronics is. So help us out. What is Mechatronics? Yeah, good question. Mechatronics involves mechanical, electrical, and software engineering. So it's a blend of all three. Um, but yeah, it's still kind of a new program. But uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Whatever happened to the idea that athletes were, you know, kind of supposed to not be the brightest ones on campus. They were just there for their sports. You guys are blowing that theory clear out of the water with this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, we, we always make the joke of athlete students, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, yes, instead of student athletes. Yeah, well, you guys are the student athletes, though, literally. Student comes first. Paula, do you, I mean, you have to coach these people, and, I mean, you're coaching the athleticism but does it change anything when you realize that the people that you are coaching are intellectually so ahead of things that does it change how you motivate or teach or anything else when they're that smart? Um, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it does. I think, you know, these guys are just always thinking about school running, how to be better students, how to be faster runners. So, um, in that running world we're all on the same page so i can relate to them in the running world is there something that no (laughs) is there sapala is there something unique about running that it lends itself to attracting brighter people i mean i again i'm trying to figure out how this works out that that these two combine is there something about the sport that draws people who are in more intellectual pursuits or is it a fluke no i think it's the type of personality that um, athletes and maybe particularly individual sported athletes are, um, they tend to be, you know, highly driven, self-motivated type A personality, a bit of a perfectionist. And I mean, and then I think distance runners might be in their own category. So, so they're, you know, they're, they're just wired that way. And it just, you know, school and it just spills over into sport. They, they, they're doing all of it at the highest level that they can do it at. So I think it's a good combination. Max, when you're running, because the one thing, as Paula points to, the the one thing when you're running by yourself, I know you're often working as a team, but you're still running by yourself and you're not talking to someone necessarily while you're running. What do you think about when you're running? Yeah, good question. I mean, cross country, um, you do still have that team aspect. Like I'm looking around for my teammates making sure, you know, they're kind of all accounted for. We work together throughout the race. Um, but also just like, I think Paula mentioned, like we're just very highly driven. We just like to push ourselves. We like to, you know, cross country is a sport of hurt, same with track. And um, yeah, we just like to embrace the pain and, and just work hard. Uh, that that's, that is, that right there turned off a lot of people from ever doing cross country, the sport of hurt, which it is, obviously it is any kind of distance running. Paula, you're, you're a, a you know, a, world-class or we're a world-class middle distance runner and, and Max, you do this. I mean, why, if it hurts so much, Max, why do you do it? A good question. I mean, I've had, you know, so many runs to think about that. Um, but I think just like, you know, the pain of pushing yourself, I think, you know, challenging yourself and, um, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, like really excites me. And like, like Paula said, we're highly driven people and, Um, we like to just be uncomfortable and and see how far we can, you know, push that envelope. Why, why did you, Paula, you, I mean, you're, you still run, not obviously competitively like you did, but same question. Why did you do it when, when it's going to hurt? Why did you do it? 
I think it was sort of the challenge and, you know, just wanting to be, you know, having this, this, this ability or this gift, this talent that, you know, you think, okay, can any, can everyone at the, in the world run at this level? Only a very small number. And so, you know, you just wanted to, to get the most out of yourself and push yourself and be as good as you can be. And I guess, I guess that's sort of what motivated me. And then, you know, I, I like, I like trying to win. So that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was, might've been a bit of that a helps. motivator. That so, helps. Um, yeah. Uh, well, Max, we got to take a break in just a, in a minute or a minute and a half here, but okay, we're talking about pain. Uh, we may as well go to the National Cross Country Championship, the end of this, because you won, your team won, but you didn't really get to celebrate all that much because of the pain. <laughs> Tell the story of what happened to you. I'm laughing. I shouldn't be. I'm not laughing at your pain. I apologize. But it, it's it's a, such a hilariously bizarre story. What happened to you at the end of the race? For sure. So it was basically, you know, one of those um, East Coast whirling winds, hurricane um, weather, but I came to the finish line um, with such exuberance, so excited, ended up slipping, landing on one of my shoulders. Um, and unfortunately I have a chronic dislocated shoulder. So it, it came out actually in that moment. Um, so I was kind of writhing in pain on the ground, but also in excitement. So it probably dulled it a bit um, and it ended up dislocating my shoulder. Um, fortunately we were able to get it in pretty close, like pretty soon. So I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything, but um, it was a bit of a long recovery and, and kind of, you know, dulled the excitement of it. But overall, um, just like a cool memory to think about, I guess. Did you even know, because this was, this is back in, um, back in November. Did you even, well, you knew you had won, obviously. You knew you crossed the finish line first. But after that, did you have any idea what had happened behind you? Yeah, I mean... I think like I had an idea throughout the race just because I saw, you know, two of our, my teammates were kind of like, you know, 10 seconds behind me. So that gave me a good indication of where we we're at team wise. But I didn't know for sure for like a few minutes after when kind of, you know, some of our teammates came running up and were like, you know, we won, we won. So having that set in at the same time as having a dislocated shoulder was definitely some mixed emotions, but um, definitely a memory I will never forget. Let's take a very quick break. We're going to come back with more with uh, Paula Schnur and with Max Turek. I will do that next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show. We are back with Max Turek, national cross-country champion as an individual. He won the whole thing himself and with his McMaster Marauders team, which, uh, which also won gold, and with their coach. Paula Schnur, who was uh, not only the OUA Coach of the Year uh, covering all sports, she was the best of the best, but also the first woman to win U Sports Coach of the Year for men's cross country, which uh, that's pretty cool, Paula. When you start adding these, anytime you start adding first onto the mantle, that's pretty cool. Yes, it is. And I would think also does a pretty good job uh, recruiting because you're going to have to recruit some people because a lot of your team is left. That's right. Um, of the seven, six are, are finally done at McMaster. And so um, I've worked a little harder this year to to try to replace these guys. And it's not going to be easy, but um, 
we've got a really strong recruiting class coming in, so I'm pretty excited about that. You know, I, I don't know um, if I have any eligibility left, but I should point out now that I've got you on the air, uh, Paula was a two-time Olympian, and in the 5K around the Bay Race a number of years ago, Max, you should probably know this, I beat Paula in the 5K. Now, Paula may have an excuse for why I beat her. You, you want to share it, Paula, to save your reputation? Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe I was... Maybe I was not trying to win that day. <laughs> maybe, maybe she was pacing Ted Michaels, our friend here from CHML, who moves at glacial speed. I took advantage, though, Max. I, <laughs> I beat your coach, and, and no one has ever accused me of being an Olympian. So, yeah. um, Max, th- tell, tell me this, because one of the things about Canadian university sports that always comes up, we know all about the NCAA. Everybody around here you know, the, the perception is that if you're really good, you're going to go to the NCAA, you're going to go to the States and get a scholarship and run. How do you, how, when people mention stuff like that, and I'm sure you hear it now and again, what do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the best of the best of the best, um, the top 1%, I mean, go for it. But, you know, if you're just kind of mid-pack or even just a really good runner, like you often get lost and um, a lot of these people just come back injured because the amount of training and the amount of ask from the coaches is is just a, a lot more than what you would get in like the OUA or the U sport. So, have you felt that you missed out on something by not going to the states? Um, no, definitely not. I mean, I'm so happy with my time here at McMaster. I, I got such a good education along with such a great athletic experience. Um, and yeah, no, I, I don't feel like I've missed out at all. Paula, is that something that you deal with ever when you go to recruit? That you're dealing with that comparison or with the competition from down there? Oh, for sure. You know, um, there's a lot of a lot of athletes that, you know, receive really, um, um, really good scholarships in the States. But, um, you know, my goal is to try to... to to let them know that you can get the same running experience and education here at home. And, you know, we do, we do the travel, we compete against some of the best in the States at times. Um, We get people to competitions where they can, you know, excel and, and, and win championships. And so, um, but that's, you know, it's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger pond over there, down there. (laughs) Um, So, so it, it makes it challenging, but, um, you know, it's just, they just have more depth. I, I believe that, you know, the athletes here at Mac could fare well um, at an NCAA competition. So Well, an individual, um, I mean, look, we, McMaster's volleyball team has done very, very well against the NCAA champions over the years. I mean, that they've, they've taken them on. And, and I, I suppose it's, it, it's the circumstance that, that some of the things, I mean, Max, if you were to compete against an NCAA runner as an individual athlete, y- you would be essentially on a level playing field, would you not? Um, <laughs> I mean, it depends. Cross country, I think I could fare well um, with some of the top guys, um, but in the track, I'm not as strong. But um, like Paula said, the depth is, you know, for every good guy here, you have 10 guys in the NCAA. So um, and, you know, the amount of money and resources they have is different. But, you know, like Paula said, you can just get just as good experience here and just as good education. So I, I really I really promote people to try to stay um, in, in Canada. 
Paula, what do you do now? Because um, you, this last year, I know that, how many, how many years was it that you finished second or third before this one in the Nationals or the Provincials? I mean, there was a number of years you guys were right there. Well, there was four years where we were fourth. Okay, fourth, all right, all right. The Nationals, <laughs> and then we were third, and then we were second, and then we were third, and then this year. Did you ever think, is this ever going to happen? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started thinking how... How, what can I do to help make this happen? I, I'm trying everything, but, you know, um, there's a little bit of luck that comes with winning for sure because you've got to have, you know, five, six guys, seven guys all running well on the same day. Um, you know, and they were, they've just been so focused on this over the last, you know, three or four years and, and each year getting better and getting closer and, you know, as a team, they uh, they wanted to do it not just for themselves, but for each other. Max, explain that. We only have a minute or two left here, but I, I'm guessing there are probably people who don't understand how team cross-country works. When Paula says you need to have five or six running well, explain why. For sure. With cross-country, basically how it works is lowest score wins. So in the U-Sports circuit, um, they score based on five runners. So you have seven that compete, but only five scores are taken. So, for example, if you go through one through five, they add the score up, and that would give you 15, um, which is like a perfect score considered. But um, often, often you know, you have displacers and other teams that would, would file in there. But um, basically, you just want to get five guys across the line um, with the lowest score um, compared to any other team, and you'll win the team race. And do you remember what your score was to win it this time? Yeah, I believe it was 37. Paul, correct me if I'm wrong. No, but I think just... you're right. I'm just looking it up here. I think you're right. That's pretty good. That's 37 is pretty good when you got to add up five, five guys. That's pretty good. Yeah, so we we crushed the other team by like 80. I think we could even take in our sixth runner and, and still would have won. But um, we have it inscribed on our championship ring, so I think that's a number we won't forget for a while. Yeah, for sure. So, Paul, I, the question as I was starting before is, what? how do you start over here? Because it almost looks like that's what you have to do. I mean, do, is, it, is it motivating to start over coming off the heels of a championship, or is it difficult to try and ratchet up the energy to start over again and bring it back to where you were? No, I mean... You know, you'd like to keep them forever, but that doesn't work that way. Um, I think it's just it's another another challenge for 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 myself and the other coaches and and for the team. We have, you know, some athletes who are in second and third year who are coming along, and then, like I said, we've we've managed to bring in um, some pretty talented high schoolers. I was just at Offsa last weekend and. And they did quite well, and and to have them running for Mac, it's going to be pretty exciting. And they're, you know, they they know what has been done here, and and they want to as a group coming in to try to be the next um, mm. flying V, as they boys want to call themselves. Well, they've got uh, it was nineteen sixty three, right? The last time. That's right. So, I so, wasn't born. Well, so 1963 until now. So they've, you know, they've got a few years to try and catch up, but something to shoot for, for sure. Uh, that is Max Turek, national cross country champion. That is Paula Schnur, national men's coach of the year. Uh, folks, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks lot, really Scott. appreciate your time as well. Thank you. Uh, as, as we've been saying all, all along today, uh, Mac has been 
honoring and celebrating the stuff that happened this year. There was some great stuff that happened, and uh, CHML has long been a partner of McMaster, and so seemed like a great time to bring them on. And plus, today outside was almost exactly, a little warmer though, almost exactly like the day they ran the National Cross Country Meet. Wet and yucky outside, and so it was, it was perfect. It was a perfect, perfect time to do this. We will take a break. Uh, news coming up. Hour number two, we're going to be chatting about Mike Andlauer, Michael Andlauer buying the Ottawa Senators, local guy, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. We're going to do that and much more after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Hope you're having a fantastic day, whether you're just joining us or whether, you're, whether you've been here all along. We're thrilled that you are along. We're going to be talking in a minute here about the story of the day today. If you have just been jumping in, uh, Michael Andlauer, who's a local guy, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, bought the Ottawa Senators today, which is, um, when you think about it, it is, it, it, it's so rare to be able to, first of all, for anyone around here to buy a team in one of the major sports leagues. I mean, I was, we certainly, um, we've got owners of CFL teams that have been purchased by locals, but in the four major leagues, I think, I think, and I stand to be corrected on this and maybe I'm missing somebody, but I think the last Hamiltonian to buy into one of the major sports leagues might have been Jack Kent Cook. He was a Hamilton guy, owned the Kings and the Lakers and the Washington Redskins at one time, but that's now... Going back a long, long time ago, well before teams were selling for a billion dollars like we got today. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. First, your quiz question. Apropos of absolutely nothing today, here's your quiz question. If you have alopecia, what is affected? What is being affected if you have something called alopecia? 905-645-3221. Star 9900, or you can text us, 905-645-3221. There's a number of different ways you can answer this question, all revolving around the same thing. We'll tell you, as long as your answer touches on the central part of this, we will accept it. If you have alopecia, what is being affected? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Or text us, give us your first name if you're going to text us, 905-645-3221. All right, well, as I said off the top, it was a very busy day today and a very, I think, I think a very exciting day for this area because it doesn't happen very often that someone from around here gets a piece, gets ownership of one of the teams in one of the four big major sports in North America. Uh, today was that day. Bubba O'Neill joins us. He's not the guy who got it, but he's going to join me to talk about it. How are you, sir? Like, is there a, is there an off season in sports for us anymore? Uh, nope, nope. But I was, as I said, just as you were coming on, I am I am I missing someone, or was the last local person? to buy a team, to be the majority owner of one of the four major team sports in North America, was it Jack Kent Cook? I think it is. It's a long time ago. It was a real long time ago. I'd have to think, really think about that. That's, that's, why, that's a great question. 
And it's, I mean, it just tells you that these teams, first of all, they don't come up for sale that often. Second of all, they're really difficult to get because you've got to usually have a line in somewhere and you got to have an awful lot of dough. And, you know, it's, um, the timing of this one really worked for Michael Andlauer because he's in the trucking and especially the medical trucking business. And, you know, his, his company, uh, was very much involved in COVID vaccines and other things It did, you know, it was, it was very busy during COVID. I, five years ago, he may not have been able to do this today. He can, and it's, I, I think it's a cool story. He is a great story. Um, and I know you did an article some time ago, kind of going back into some of his, if I may call meager beginnings. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, like, let, like, let, let people should know that, you know, Michael Anlauer wasn't born with a lollipop, a golden lollipop in his mouth. And, um, everything that he has earned has come from hard work, trust, um, and good relations. And, you reward uh, someone like that and you feel happy for someone like that when they, like, let's be honest, somewhere, he might have never told you or I, but somewhere in the back of his mind, maybe even when he bought the, the, the I mean, heck, heck, that's why he bought ownership in the Montreal Canadian. Like somewhere, I'm sure he wanted to be along the line, an NHL owner. And, you know, I'm sure he knew a couple of days ago that this was going to actually happen, but to have that announcement happen early this morning, what a what a what a, um, an announcement! What a feeling that must be for him and his family. You know, uh, and let me just back up to what you said because not everybody is going to know, and I don't expect them to know. But you're right. I mean, this is not um, th- there could be someone who um, was an you know the the grandson of an oil baron who had all this money handed to them. And you know what? If that was the case, I I'm not one of those people who gets bent out of shape if someone inherits money, so be it. You know, some, some people, some people that's their lot and they get that. And the rest of us don't, and there's no sense being all fired up about it. That's what it is. But he, he, he is a guy, as you say, was, um, grew up in Notre Dame de Grasse, which was a suburb of Montreal with a single mother. And he told me a couple of years ago, um, you know, his early days, breakfast was watered down powdered milk with puffs, cereal and dinner. They would make a pot of um, of, uh, lentil and like oxtail soup and make it last for the week. And I mean, this is, this is, this is who we're talking about. This is not a guy, as you say, who came with a silver spoon. He's, he's made this himself. And so even if you, even if you're one of those people who really just can't bring it in yourself to like rich people, this is a guy who his story, he and his story are both likable. And I think this is, you talk to anyone from, I don't know, Bulldogs announcer Reed Duffy to, you know, his former hires and Gruden and Steve Steos, um, Peggy Chapman, like, go on and on of the people who he's had, you know, he was the big boss. And the respect that he treats his people with, no one... Like, can you find anyone to say a bad thing or word about Michael Landmeyer? Like, find me one. Like, it just doesn't exist. Well, the guy, the guy is a good, the guy is a good guy who, in my opinion, has done wonderful things in terms of sports for this city and extended that good tidings into other things like the breakfast deals and mm. all the charitable works and the 50-50 and you know, and 
running an any. Let's be honest. You and I know this. Running an AHL and, and OHL franchise that probably didn't make a lot of money. Uh, didn't. Well, I mean, that's what he's always said. That it, you know, he doesn't say it. He doesn't announce it. But it has. If you ask him, it has not made money ever. That this has been. You know, it's cost him money to run the team here and keep the lights on in the arena and all these kind of things. And and so no, I, I as I say, I I think today is a is an exciting day. I mean, I. I I was trying to think now I was going the other way for a second. I was trying to think like what what would today be like if the person who bought the team was just a colossal giant jerk. And I and and that's clearly not the story here, but it's like would we be excited if a local person who was a complete dink had got a hold of the team? And probably the answer is no. But it even if it's local and you want someone local to do well, but it's, it's, you know, he's, he's, he's just a, I mean, I, I've, I've always thought he's a good guy and he's an honorable guy. And, and I, you know, as I say, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's cool for this area. Now, let me stop one second here. Not, not to dispute any of that. There are people today, Bubba, who already were online and other places saying, Hey, maybe, maybe he can bring the senators here. My uh, Facebook page is full of it. Is it? Yep, full of it, full of it. And I had to say something today on on our newscast that that's a condition of sale. That that franchise is going nowhere. Uh, yeah, this that and and I mean, I suppose like I wrote today that you know the senators are never coming here, and I suppose you know never is a long time. I suppose if somehow. Uh, you know, the business was to completely collapse and blah, 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 you know, but there's going to have to be 125 things to happen in order before that team moves anywhere. It is staying in Ottawa. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think people should just shut that down immediately. (laughs) I mean, I know there were some uh, some people that were like, is this some kind of weird foreshadowing that, you know, the fact that maybe the senators should have been here, you know, what, back in the in, in the mid-90s? Like, maybe that should have happened, but... Well, it should have. Know. It should have. Let, let, let's, be, let's be frank. The, the Ottawa senators should have been the Hamilton whatever it was had the owner group here been willing to weave the tall tale that the owner group there did about their finances. We would have had a team, but they didn't. And so, you know, there's no team here. Um, but it's not moving. It's not coming here regardless. That, that's not what this is all about. But so w- what do you do then? I mean, if you are, how do we look at this? Because here's one of the other interesting things. I think most people in this area, Baba, most people um, who are Leaf fans have n- have no warm, fuzzy feelings for the Ottawa Senators. Do you think that we get a, suddenly a bunch of new Ottawa Senators fans? Or do you think people become, yeah, I still am happy for Michael Andlauer, but I hope his team loses every game? I think it's a little bit of both there, Scott. I, I think there are going to be new new people that, that begin to follow that team based on the fact that there's ownership. And with all due respect to the former owner, who's you know unfortunately passed away, he didn't have a lot of friends. Um, Mr. Melnick made a lot of enemies along the way. Hard businessman that's done really, really well, had done really well for himself, but he also made a lot of enemies along the way. And I think the way Michael Anlauer will present himself, and uh, we just don't know what will happen. And it's so tough to talk about the head coach and general manager and what will happen to Mr. Dorian and Mr. and DJ Smith as the head coach going forward. I would think they would remain in place. I know one contract is over at the end of this year. I think Smith is done for two years, but 
we've seen this a thousand times where um, an owner or a, a general manager comes in and they want their people. So, and we know who his people is. We know exactly who his people are, and one of them is with the Edmonton Oilers. Who, I, I, yeah, who I, used I, to be I, with I, the Hamilton Bulldogs. That's right, a trusted friend, uh, someone who, uh, you know, they almost pro- probably kind of mentored each other in, in some ways. And we're talking uh, about Steve Steos, by the way, for those who haven't absolutely. put that together, yeah. For sure, you know, that, that, that they kind of mentored each other, and what, in, in three years put together two, uh, two squads that went to the Memorial Cup and won an Ontario Championship? Yeah, I mean, five years, but three seasons because of COVID. So, yeah, in three seasons, they did it twice. And, you know, you're right. You have to, I would assume, well, here, I mean, Bobby, neither you, well, maybe you, I don't know. I certainly will never be in a position to spend a billion dollars to buy anything. But I'm assuming that if you put down a billion dollars, 950 million, I think is the exact number. But if you put down a billion dollars to buy something, you darn well want to have people in place that you trust and you believe in. And, and he absolutely believes in Steve Steos. I mean, I think it's a foregone conclusion that Steos is going to be there. For sure. So just to your original question, think of all those people who are fans of Steve Steos and fans of Michael Anlauer and mm-hmm. people who are fans of Hamilton Hockey. It might be a whole new audience for the Senators that, you know, say, you know what, and especially with the way things have gone for the Maple Leafs over the years, there are a lot of people out there that are just tired of it, right? And maybe looking for a new team, maybe a whole new young generation of people that, you know, that become Senator fans that just don't necessarily live in the Ottawa Valley. The other name that really, that was a really interesting bit of timing today that I don't know if it means anything, um, but remember, Michael Andlauer, uh, if, again, for those who don't know his story completely, he's been a part owner of the Canadians, grew up as a diehard Montreal Canadiens fan. And there's a guy who just stepped down as head coach of his junior team, just won the Memorial Cup a few days ago, uh, has been in the NHL before, happened to be the goalie for the Montreal Canadiens during their last day in the Cup. I'm talking about Patrick Waugh. You think there's any... A plus B equals C here with Roa stepping down right when Ann Lauer gets the team and they might need a coach? Like, wasn't the timing, like, so ironic? Yes, very. Like, that's what's what make you wonder. Like, the, the, you know, his press conference and that announcement all happened within basically a, a half an hour of each other, right? And he was asked the question, and I believe in French said that he has no plans to even be in the National Hockey League or whatever. Like, whether he chooses to take a break right now, we don't know. But I... You know, you're talking about a guy that coached for three years, had some success, was uh, Jack Adams Award winner, is Coach of the Year, uh, I, I, and and he, I believe, is a probably a better coach now than he was then. Known as a bit of a hothead as he was back in his playing days, I think he's mellowed, he's matured. I think he understands, and I've heard I've heard this from a lot of people in in the junior hockey loops, is that he's real good with teaching kids and teaching young players. Um, you know, and that that goes a long way with being in the National Hockey League, Hockey League right now. You've got to be able to know how to talk and teach um, young players. They're just different than they were back in when Patrick Waugh played in his playing days. It's a different scene, and boy, the linkage is is incredible. Um, I do. I will say this: Patrick Waugh is going to be back in the National Hockey League. When we just don't know. Will it be the? Will it be with the Ottawa Senators? What a story it would be! Do you That's think ne- that would be the net? That would be the net for Patrick Waugh. In that, where then mm-hmm. people have to remember where Ottawa is located. Yep. 
next to coaching the Habs, that's the next best. Or even maybe if there, if there was a Quebec Nordique, that, that would be the, that would be the next best thing is coaching the Senators. Well, it's the only yeah. other team uh, that requires a bilingual coach. I would say, or should yeah. have a bilingual coach. Yes, so. Um, and certainly the proximity, yes. I mean, they, that place is that city uh, filled with um, filled with Habs fans. Don't forget. I mean, the Rawaz last year, the year that they not not his last year, the year they won the Stanley Cup for Montreal the last time was '93, which I think was the second year of the Ottawa Senators. So people had been watching the Canadians there for years as their as their team, or at least half of them. So yeah, it would be a really really interesting scenario if 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 he were to come there do you and, and you and you talk about transfer fans how many fans of patrick wall out there might all of a sudden become sense fans yeah you know that may be i think the hardest challenge that michael anlauer is going to have and i don't know that he i don't know how much he cares about this honestly at some point we'll talk to him i mean he's been a little busy today but um at some point we'll talk and ask but I don't know how much it matters to him that he grows the fan base outside of Ottawa. I think that's going to be a huge challenge. I really do. Um, just because the Senators don't get a ton of coverage, don't get a ton of airtime, it's a small market. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons why I think it's a, um, a difficult thing to try and spread the tentacles into other markets where there are teams, but who knows? But if, you, if you're successful and you win, right? Like, if you're successful and you win, remember, I, I always remind people, like, I mean, obviously the, the Senators have gone to the Cup, right? Um, they were one overtime Sidney Crosby goal away from going to the Cup not all that long ago, not even a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that building, I remember, it was rocking. Right, they, they they had some real good days and some good strings there. You think and 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 again, you add in not only the Ann Lauer, you know, within the the ownership is ten percent of it of of Ann Lauer's um, share of the business. It is owned by two very substantial local owners that are part of this. That are you know that have a vision for this area for that area. Um. I just I, I see a lot of good tidings coming from this. You know what the one thing would be that I would be really interested in seeing if he was going to do it is um, the Ryan Reynolds story. And everyone knows Ryan Reynolds, the actor, the Canadian actor from Vancouver, had been in the mix to try and buy this team and then pulled out. And I I really believe that that had all stemmed from anyone who's seen the series Welcome to Wrexham about the 5th Division or 4th Division, whatever it was, Welsh soccer team that he bought with his buddy Rob McElhaney. And they did a series about this. And it was an entertaining series, no question. It was behind the scenes. And uh, it would be fascinating to see if, you know, for a 1% or 2% share or something, if you get him in as that kind of owner, if they would do that kind of, see, that kind of series, I think, Bob, the one thing, if you're talking about trying to expand the reach of the Ottawa Senators from their tiny market, you get someone like Ryan Reynolds to do a show like that, and that might be the thing that gets people watching and interested and caring about those players. Maybe so. I mean, again, you're probably talking to the wrong person about this whole Ryan Reynolds fandom um and i and i get it i get it and, and you know and, and even doing a, an interview today with uh tsn 1200 um 
with AJ Jakobek and and he he had said that when the Reynolds group stepped out, there was a tremendous amount of disappointment. Um, and you, maybe you're onto something there. That you know what, maybe if they can get him involved somehow, some way. Um, I'm told that Michael has has reached out to him at some point. Um, what the answer was, I, I don't know. So yeah, um, who knows? What you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's uh, it's going to be it's it's a really interesting scenario. And the other the one other thing that I think is going to be really really interesting. And let's bring it back here to Hamilton. We got a couple minutes left. Is is there any connection with this city, Michael's? Michael's relationship with the civic leaders in this city has not always been smooth, uh, which is kind of the really nice way of saying it's been very rocky and complicated at times. But I wonder if there's something there that, you know, there are exhibition games here or there's something else. I wonder if that kind of thing happens or if the two teams are clearly separated and they don't have any kind of overlap and, Ottawa stays in Ottawa and the Bulldogs go wherever the Bulldogs go and that's it. I, I'll be interested to see if if we see any Ottawa Senators connections here. Well, I think I think Ottawa, or sorry, uh, Hamilton would be third on the depth chart there. I would think any allegiance outside of you know, the Ottawa region would probably then go to Belleville. Right, I mean that's where the AHL franchise is there. Sure, and I would think you would have to service them first. With if you're talking about exhibition games or, you know, some type of events with the big club, I would think that Belleville would probably mm-hmm. have to be serviced first before long before Hamilton. I'll tell you one thing, which really has me not I don't know if concern is the word, but if you're Michael and Lauer, and yes, the Bulldogs have been your baby. Um, but right now he's got big, bigger fish to fry. Yep, much. Um, you know, does he sell the, at least the majority share of the Bulldogs? If you know, and they, and they're, it appears to me that they're going to be successful in Brantford at least. Um, does he keep his hand somehow in the Bulldogs, but sell the majority franchise? I'll let you clear your throat while, while I answer. That. I don't. I don't think Bubba was getting emotional about that. I think it was a frog in his throat. But, um, but uh, so uh, we were talking earlier in the show, and my 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 thought all along about this has been that he's always said that he's going to bring the Bulldogs back here once the arena is redone and everything else. I'm. Uh, I think it's going to have everything to do with how Brantford really responds to this team. And if they sell out every game, and if it's a wild atmosphere, and if it's a big, big deal in Brantford, and if Brantford goes ahead with what they've talked about doing, because they're exploring it, they've, they've launched a two hundred dollars or $250,000 study into building a new OHL size arena, like five or six or 7,000 seats. Wow. And if they were to build that, and all that stuff happened, and you've got a city that is falling over itself to do anything it can for you, or you can come here where, as I say, there have been complications. He has had a tough time dealing with this city at times. And you're right, now that he's got a much bigger fish on the line, I think if, if everything happens with Brantford that it is perfect, 
he may just say, why give myself more work? I've got lots to do with the senators. Let's just let it ride in Brantford. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, that that's assuming again that everything in Brantford happens like it can. We don't know that yet. Mm-hmm. We don't know that yet. But we'll see because that's, that's you're right. You know what? He spent a billion dollars to buy this team. He spent $10 million to buy the Bulldogs. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a bigger fish and you've got a lot more going on. You have a lot more issues to deal with. I don't know that he, I, I think he wants to keep his junior team. I think he still, I think he really, you know, has a passion for the Hamilton Bulldogs, but I don't know that he wants to be spending a ton of time having to put out fires with it. He'd have to, and he'd have to have someone real trust. I mean, there are obvious people and then we talk about Max Eric right now and like, there is going to be someone, we t- you talked about this earlier, about having someone you trust. There will have to be someone that he trusts real well to run this Bulldog franchise while he, you know, basically checks in mm-hmm. instead of once every day or once every, like it'll be once every month maybe. Well, yeah, and you don't want, and, and, you know, again, you've got a lot going on if you're him. You don't want to be taking phone calls all the time needing to put out fires. You want it to run smoothly and be something that, you know, is going along tickety-boo and you can enjoy having that team there and drop in and, you know, it's, it, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it goes, uh, but I think there's question. I really do. And it's all, you know, if, if he didn't get the Senators, I don't think the question exists, but I think now there is a question, but we, I could be way off. We'll see. We'll have to see how this one plays oh, out. You know, that, 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 there's so many questions here with that and, you know, like you and I have discussed in the past, and as, and it, once again, this has proven itself. Um, hey, folks, if any of you are out there and listening and you want to purchase an NHL franchise, Michael Manlauer did it the right way. Hey, if anyone out there wants to purchase an NHL franchise and has that kind of money, I am open and available to be purchased as a best friend for hire. If you've got a billion dollars and you need a new best friend, uh, you know where to find me. Bubba, I'm sure, is available too, so give us a I, call. I, I am. I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> I appreciate it, sir. Thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, sorry, your, your trivia question one more time? My quiz question? If yeah. you have alopecia, what is affected? Yeah. All right, don't say it I, out I, loud, though, but you can tell. No, 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 no. I heard half of it. All right, you can tell Matt if you think you know it. I'll put you on hold here. That is uh, that is Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Watch him uh, tonight on the News at 11. You'll catch in there. Bubba, thanks for doing this. Always thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's take a break here on the Scott Radley Show. Back right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Little Boston. Boston played at Cops Coliseum once upon a time. You know that? Back in 1988, maybe, 87, 89, something in there. I still have the concert t-shirt. It is thin as rice paper now. If I were to put it on my body, it would immediately disintegrate. But I insisted on keeping it. I think largely to drive my wife crazy because it's in the drawer and she keeps wanting to throw it out and I refuse. Anyway, uh, I'm going to bring Matt in here. Matt's in uh, on the other side of the glass today. I'm going to bring Matt in here today because Matt, I, I came up with, I found this list today of reasons for food packaging. Food packaging is, you know, like the... You would normally say, well, they package it just because they want you to buy it, which is, of course, true. But there are certain reasons for things and ways that certain foods are packaged, all right, which I did not know this. Now, I'll start with an easy one. Do you know why beer is usually bottled in dark bottles? 
Yeah, I do because of the sun, right? That's right. Yeah, okay. because the hops in beer, when they're exposed to light, they have a chemical reaction which creates. You know what you could, what they call it? No skunking. Okay, yeah. It smells because the chemical reaction makes the beer smell like a skunk's, which really isn't very pleasant at the best of times, let alone when you're trying to drink a beer. So, yes, dark beer. So, good. Right off the bat, you got that one. Dark beer (laughs) or dark bottles because it keeps the beer fresh and keeps it from going bad. All right, let's get more difficult. Why is round pizza sold in square boxes? Yeah, I don't know. See, this one's tougher, and I would never have got this one. Uh, It's because back when they started making them, the box can be made with a single piece of cardboard. If you fold it creatively enough, I guess they never could figure out how to do a round round box (laughs) properly without it being way more complicated. So you ever seen those guys like in the store, you walk in one time and they're waiting for a piece to be made and like, it's amazing how fast they can origami those boxes into shape now. Um, All right. Dog kibble. Dog kibble is sold in thick, thick, do you have dogs? Yes. Okay. And so you buy a bag of dog food and the bag is incredibly thick paper. Why? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm sure this isn't right, but so the dogs can't get into it, but I know they still can. So you're, you're, <laughs> you're very close to being right, but it's not the dogs that they're worried about getting into it. Most people, uh, okay, I see where you're going. Most people apparently keep their dog food in the basement or more likely in the garage. Mm-hmm. And what else is going to try and get into the dog's food? Rats. Exactly. That's, it's a pest inhibitor. The ah. fact that the bags are that thick is to try and keep mice and rats and other pests out of the dog food. We have had the unfortunate experience once of scooping a big scoop of dog food into the bowl and having no. a well dehydrated <laughs> mouse that had got in there and couldn't get back out. Uh, thankfully, we spotted it before the dogs did and jumped in and decided to, because oh, you don't yeah. pry that out of their mouth once no they way. get it. Um, why are eggs sold in a dozen? I mean, it's just natural eggs come in a dozen, but when you think about it, okay, there has to be a reason why are eggs sold in dozens? I, d- this is a tough one. This <laughs> is a know. really tough one. I thought you were going to ask about the packaging. I was like, well, cause it's probably more sturdy and more, you know, durable, but that no, you, you went with how many and I have no idea. So the, the explanation, and it's a little bit complicated is, um, that, uh, Apparently back way, way, way back in like old, 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 old England, the cost of an egg was worked out to be about a twelfth of a shilling. And so what they realized very quickly, being geniuses that they were, is, well, it's easier instead of buying one egg, if it's 12 for a shilling instead of selling them individually and having to break a shilling into 12, let's just put 12 of them together and you can just give me one shilling and away we go. Okay. That, I mean, it makes... We're still doing it. Makes all the sense in the world if, if uh, um, for that one. That one's, that one's super easy. All right. This one, this one, I, I, it drives everybody crazy. This one does because we all think we're being hosed. But there's a reason for this. Why, when you buy a bag of chips are the chips only filling about half the bag? Because we all think we're just being ripped off. It's got to be the air pressure, right? Like like not wanting it to explode. Well, not wanting it to explode, but y- you're right about the air. The, the, they say this is the reason. See, I still think we're just being Elevation, ripped off. Elevation, maybe. They say the air serves as protection, so when you get the chips, they don't all end up squished and broken into a billion pieces, that it keeps them from breaking apart. I... 
I'll, I'll I don't know. Forty three percent air apparently is the perfect amount to protect the chip. And to charge us more for less chips, quite honestly. Yeah, because I'm sure that's been a sliding scale. I'm sure it has. Um, The air, by the way, when you open up a bag of chips, the air inside is nitrogen, which helps to, I guess they pump nitrogen in there to keep it fresh. And it's unclear here if nitrogen in any way is better than just air at holding its shape to protect the chips. But yeah, nitrogen is filled in and then uh, the chips apparently arrive more safely. Why, we've got, uh, let's see here, two more. Why is Tabasco sauce sold in tiny, tiny bottles? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, not even my wildest dreams would I even think about this. So. Because, well, because everything else that you go to the store, if you ever go yeah. buy hot sauce, all hot sauces are sort of in larger bottles than okay. Tabasco. Tabasco is by far the smallest little bottle. The reason is because it's a, it's a tradition because originally it was sold in perfume type containers because that's what the Tabasco people had at their disposal, used perfume things. And so people got used to these small, there's nothing, no good reason that it keeps it fresher or anything. It's just a tradition that it was always a smaller size. And I guess for them now, it's great because now it's like a small thing and they can still charge more and more and more and they don't have to go up in size. It's beautiful for them. Yeah. never mind. No, no shrinkflation, right? All right, last one, and this is the one that no one has ever been able to explain before. We will try and solve the riddle right now. Why do hot dogs come in packs of 12, but hot dog buns come in packs of eight? It makes no sense to anybody why they don't match them up, but why is it? I have no idea, and I forget the uh, skit about this as well, so I, I can't even quote that. It goes back. Now, I don't know why they haven't changed this because they could have, but it goes back to the fact that hot dogs used to be, because they are a meat product, sold by the pound. Okay. When you would go to the butcher, hot dogs were sold by the pound, and 10 hot dogs, because it used to be 10 you used to get in a pack. Now we get eight because of shrinkflation, but 10 used to equal roughly a pound. So it was easy, again, 10 hot dogs for a pound, like with the eggs once upon a time, and buns, well, they always sell buns as a dozen with everything. So... Yeah. It, I mean, it doesn't explain why they couldn't change it now, but, you know, tradition and just to drive us crazy with the fact that we always end up with either two or four extra buns. So we're still talking about it. Well, now you got to buy three packs of hot dogs to match up with the two bags of buns. And then you hope and pray that none of the buns are torn because now you've got this, you know, unusable bun with one naked hot dog that you have to eat by itself. Or jam two into one bun, which is really weird. Anyway. Unrelated, but are you a, a, a bread and bun guy in the fridge? Like, are you a fridge guy? Do we that? refrigerate it? Yeah. Uh, I prefer not to, but I also, at a certain point, you got to, or else yeah. your bread is going to be only good for toast. Gotcha. Right? But are you a bre- are you a, a cold bread or keep it on yeah. top? Yeah. No, I, I, I prefer, what's a good word here without sounding weird? I prefer my bread supple. <laughs> I thought you were going to say room temperature. <laughs> well, that too. But I like it when it's squishy bread, not when it's cold and takes on more firmness. But anyway, that's getting into weirdness. All right, here's your quiz question this evening, all the time we got left. If you have alopecia, what is affected? 905-645-3221, star 9900, or text us 905-645-3221. Give us your first name if you're going to text us. What is affected if you have alopecia? 
Come back with the answer after this. Stay with us. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.